You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 12. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hi there. I hope you're doing well. Today we have an unusual guest. Chris Killam is a medicine hunter. He's an author and educator. He has conducted medicinal plant research in over 45 different countries. He works with companies to develop and popularize traditional plant-based foods and medicinal products, things like kava, maca, radiola, tamano oil, and many, many others. Chris's passion is to bridge the worlds. He does this by regularly sharing information about other cultures through presentations and media. He has appeared on over 1,500 radio programs and more than 500 television programs worldwide, including Fox News Health, The New York Times, ABC News Nightline, Newsweek, The Dr. Oz Show, Good Morning America, and many more. CNN calls him the Indiana Jones of natural medicine. As a TV correspondent and guest, he speaks about medicine hunting, traditional botanical medicines, nutraceuticals, psychoactive plants, environmental and cultural preservation, and other related topics to a broad and diverse variety of audiences. Chris is an avid body surfer and adventure traveler. He lives and works in Massachusetts with his wife. Together, they travel the globe on medicine hunter expeditions and work to promote plant medicine, environmental protection, and cultural preservation. Chris, hello. Welcome yes. to the show. Uh, it's well, thank you, Lana. It's very exciting to have you here. Um, I am uh, interested in learning and sharing a little bit uh, with our audience about your path, how you became interested in uh, medicine hunting. What you know? How did you end up on this very, very unconventional path? Well, I, I would love to be able to tell you that it was a very, very well thought out plan that I knew where I was going and that I carefully, you know, set about to to do this work. But none of that's true. I, uh, as a teenager, I became interested in herbs for no apparent reason that I can think of, honestly, Lana. It was just kind of like the idea hit me. And um, I started investigating the uh, apothecaries in Boston Chinatown, and, and I didn't even, I had no idea what I was looking at. I knew of ginseng, and that was it. You know, I started doing this around 1970, and over time, I became you know, somewhat knowledgeable. I got what books were out at that time. There weren't lots of books. Um, and I was unaware of the uh, pharmacognosy books that some of the, the medical and, you know, and pharmacy schools had. So it was really a matter of flying blind for a long time. 
and I got involved with the natural products industry uh, primarily because there were like-minded people there who were interested in natural lifestyle. And to to sort of take a, a very, very long and non-linear saga and, and make it, you know, somewhat more comprehensible, I, uh, you know, I... I had a love of travel, though I had not done that much, but I knew it was something I wanted to do, and I was fascinated by herbs. And um, over the course of working in the natural foods industry for a few years, I became more informed. You know, the natural product scene is, is where most people wind up encountering herbs and herbal products these days, uh, you know, much less so from health practitioners. And um, eventually, uh, you know, after many years of study and taking seminars with people and, and just sort of grousing around, I, I became knowledgeable enough that I could, uh, you know, advise people on herbs. And, and in 94, I got invited to be the herbal expert on a, um, a mission to China. And I went and had an amazing experience and came back. Um, thinking, gosh, you know, I could do this far better than the people who set this up. And almost as soon as I kind of uttered that to myself, I was contacted by somebody who wanted me to help them to develop a, a very large herbal extraction business. And um, that was the beginning of me doing this work, you know, as a career, traveling the globe, investigating medicinal plants, uh, meeting with indigenous plant experts, you know, shamans and herbalists and curers and healers of all different kinds. And um, fortunately, you know, I've been successful enough in this work that I've been able to do it in, you know, over 40 countries. And um, these days, you know, I, I'm thankfully very well established in the field. And, and I think one of the the key factors here uh, was that it's all been a case of right timing. You know, this is a time when, you know, people are very, very interested in natural remedies when they are seeking alternatives to toxic uh, pharmaceutical products. I think to the greatest extent, Lana, um, you know, what has happened with me has been a case of very good timing. Um, you know, the 60s sort of initiated... Uh, uh, kind of a back to nature movement and the natural product scene has, has grown tremendously. And um, I was just fortunate to develop this interest in herbs and in things natural, right as this whole big cultural trend was occurring. So it's been very, you know, if I, if I'd been interested like this 40 or 50 years prior um, you know, I probably would be, you know, in some other, uh, earning a living some other way, but it just happened that I, I really caught the timing of this whole trend very, very well. That's wonderful. And so uh, I have interviewed a number of different practitioners and a number of different people in the natural product industry, but you stand out as someone who is very different. Uh, part of it is because you travel so much, and just like you mentioned, 40 different countries. Um, did it start with China, or were the, uh, there are other expeditions or other adventures prior to that? Well, um, 
I I spent some time in the high desert of uh, Southern California in the late 70s, and I went around looking at some of the indigenous uh, herbs that natives had used in that area, um, you know, in antiquity. And um, I also, in the early 80s, made a trip to India where, among other things, I invested some, investigated some natural remedies. But, but doing this, um, you know, as a career was something that didn't come until later. It came, came in the, you know, the early 90s. Okay. All right. Um, out of all the travels that you can think of, uh, what have been some of your uh, most favorite places to explore as far as plants go? Well, for sure, the place that I've been to the most um, has been the Peruvian Amazon. I've done work in the Brazilian Amazon and in Ecuador and a little bit in Venezuela and uh, Guyana. You know, the Amazon, of course, looms large in terms of, of being a very biodiverse area, even though, of course, it, it's being destroyed faster than we can blink our eyes. Um, but uh, it's really uh, home to not only a long and enduring tradition of indigenous, you know, native plant medicine through the shamans who practice there, um, but also just uh, a remarkably biodiverse place. So I'd say, you know, the Amazon, certainly. Um, I spent about 10 years working with people in Vanuatu, South Pacific, relative to kava and to uh, a healing skin oil called tamanu, which is a, a caliphylum uh, nut. And, um, you know, I, I've enjoyed, I like the tropical places, Lana. I mean, I've done a project in Siberia before. I've done some mountain projects, and, and I like those. But um, I, I really enjoy the tropics. So basically, between 20 degrees and 20 degrees around the globe, mm -hmm. those are the places I, I really enjoy spending the time, and especially now that it's winter, you know? Yes, yes. It's definitely a benefit. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago before we started that you're heading out uh, in a few days. So... Uh, it's it's definitely very good timing in terms of frigid temperatures of the northeast and heading to the Amazon where you will be able to warm up a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I really love is going back to places. Um, I've done many, many one-off uh, projects, but I've also been fortunate to do, you know, repeat projects in... India, China, um, the Peruvian Andes, the Amazon, uh, the South Pacific. And I like that. You know, I like building the relationships with people going further each time. You know, part of it is uh, earning people's trust and being, you know, uh, having people share knowledge and, and information. Because, you know, so many native people and people who live in, in areas that have medicinal plants of value have been very badly burned by pharmaceutical companies who rip them off, by people who promise them, you know, participation in, uh, you know, benefit sharing if a product does well. And, and, and often these people are left with nothing. And my approach is, is completely different uh, from that. But I you know, I, I sometimes follow years or decades of, of people being, you know, 
taken terrible advantage of. So sometimes it takes a little while for people to go, well, you know, this guy's really on the level and he does what he says and he's not out to, uh, to rip us off. Um, and, and that's really possible when you go back to a place again and again and again. I mean, I've done a lot of work in Morocco, for example, in Malaysia, and you keep showing up and people, oh, yeah, okay, this guy again. All right, all right you know, this is good. This is good. Um, so it, it's, been, it's been wonderful to have deeper uh, relations and repeat visits in places uh, where there are, you know, is a good tradition uh, and good biodiversity. That's wonderful. Um, Chris, you are talking about people that and the relationship that uh, relationships that you are building. But earlier on, you also mentioned the shamans. Can you tell us a little bit about what who these people are? How you know, how do you actually build relationships? And what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned from people that you have been interacting with? Well, as as you probably know, Lana, you know uh, the, the term shaman actually comes from the Tungusic language in in Siberia, and uh, you know it, it refers really to somebody who is kind of a mediator between the phenomenal world and the and the spirit world. And and what you find among shamans now, the term shaman is very widely used to describe healers throughout the Amazon region, in fact, more so than any place, um, that you know, language travels just like music does and food does. And the shamans occupy a, a unique place in society. They're the, you know, they're the herbalists, they're the wise healers, they're the, they're the experienced diagnosticians. And also what's typical and, and essential to shamanism is that they work not just with plants, not just with um, nutritional items, but with the spirits of those foods, with the spirits of nature. And it's not a metaphor. It's not a description of something else. When they say they work with the spirits, they mean it. And um, the shamans are often multi-generational practitioners. Um, you know, when I talk with shamans, I ask them who they learned from. And almost everybody says, oh, I learned from my grandmother. Um, and women are definitely, uh, you know, key bearers of, of plant knowledge and wisdom all around the world. You know, they're, they're the ones who really deserve the, the greatest credit for this. I mean, men certain play, certainly play very heavily in the healing scene, but it's really the women around the world who have carried all of this medicine forward. And it was uh, the case that shamanism, especially in the Amazon, was really dying out. Um, when I first started going to the Amazon, in the 90s, uh, what I what I saw were people who had largely turned away from the shamans, who were, you know, much more interested in taking Panadol or some sort of a, a drugstore remedy. And um, you know, there was a lot of concern among anthropologists and ethnologists that shamanism would just die out completely, and that these sort of you know living libraries of knowledge would would just disappear. But oddly, um, over the past 10 or more years, 
there's been a tremendous interest in the Amazonian uh, psychoactive brew ayahuasca, which is a very powerful psychedelic and has been used for healing purposes, we don't know, for probably about 2,000 years or so. And that interest, oddly enough, has um, caused a resurgence in the interest in shamanism. So people people who might otherwise have chosen to go to the cities to become taxi drivers or or to, you know, basically leave their communities and become estranged from what they know to earn a living now are in many instances choosing to stay and to learn with grandma or their father or their mother and to work with these plant medicines because there's actually a following. Uh, We see this tremendous resurgence uh, in interest in shamanism and not just uh, an interest in ayahuasca, but also in other plants that the shamans use to heal. So it's kind of an an intriguing thing that has happened and, and frankly, somewhat unexpected. That's fascinating. Um, I know very little, just the basics of ayahuasca, but I remember uh, when I was uh, told the first time, uh, ayahuasca was used as an example of spirits of uh, plants because the the parts of ayahuasca, the two separate plants, are combined, and they're not very showy. They're not very, you know, they, they don't really call the attention uh, to themselves, but the fact that they and they usually do not grow together, based on my understanding. But the fact that they were combined—that someone true. actually had the wisdom of putting these two things—that now we have tested, and you know, from the pharmacological perspective, we understand their mechanisms. That's a, that was to me. It was explained as a proof of uh, spirits that guided shamans or that guided people that really understood this plant. Uh, can you tell well, us yeah. more about this? Well, well you're, you're hitting on one of the great bewildering mysteries. Uh, uh, I mean, bewildering to some people anyway. Um, ayahuasca, which is a, a very foul-tasting brew, uh, is made from two plants in the Amazon. It's the only combinatory uh, psychoactive agent we have. Uh, and uh, basically, it, it involves a vine, which is called Banisteriopsis copy, and a leaf, which is uh, known as Psychotria viridis. And these two together um, form, when they're, when they're prepared in a certain way and cooked down for a long period of time, make this profoundly potent psychoactive brew. Uh, ayahuasca, and you really only drink uh, an ounce or two of this at most, and you have quite a long journey. Um, And now, hardcore reductionists say, oh, well, it was trial and error, which makes no sense at all. There are about 80,000 higher plants in the Amazon, about 10,000 of which are vines, and, you know, all of them have leaves. So how did somebody go, oh, I'll take this vine and I'll take this leaf among the 80,000 plants here and I'll pound this vine and I'll, you know, mix it with this leaf in a certain fashion. So you, you take this vine and you pound it and you add a leaf to it and you layer these in a big pot and 
you cook it all down with a huge amount of water and then you drink the remaining sludge, basically. Um, the trial and error idea completely falls apart. It's something like six billion to one that somebody would just come upon that. Uh, and what the shamans all say and what the healers all say is, no, the plants told us. And this is hard for us because we think it's a metaphor, we think it's a superstition, we think it's an idea that means something else. And for them, it's not. For them, it's not at all. It's no, no, the plants told us. And, and when a shaman, sometimes a shaman will say, well, I mean, don't the plants tell you? You know, incredulous that there could be entire groups of people who are not getting direct communication from plants. So this remains one of the, kind of one of the big mysteries in, in ethnobotany. And, um, you know, I, I, I started out listening to the shamans and thinking uh, and, and coming up with, you know, the, the idea that what they were saying was a metaphor for something else. Uh, but then I came to realize, no, it's not. When they say they're, they're, you know, being guided by the spirits of the plants or they're receiving communication from the spirits of the plants or, or they're getting some other knowledge from those spirits, they mean it. That's, that's their practical reality. That is absolutely fascinating. So let me kind of build on this question. So what are some of the plants that have been teaching you throughout the last 30 years or 40 years? And what have been some of your best teachers, some of the plants that you have learned the most from? Well, I, I would say, you know, it's funny. Um, I, 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 another question that I ask people, and, and I'm getting to the answer to your question, sure. I, I'll ask people, are you working for the plants or are the plants working for you? And pretty much everybody I've ever asked that to, out of hundreds of people, says, oh, that's a good question. I, I have this strong sense of being summoned by these plants, you know, a sudden interest in maca out of nowhere that has led to a 20-year engagement with the plant, and the same with kava, and, you know, feeling compelled to go to Siberia to study the adaptogenic plant rhodiola rosea, which may be the best thing for stress that we have. Um, my, my sense, and the sense of many people who work in this field, is that the plants call to us. And, I mean, they don't pick up the phone and say, hey, Chris, you know, come on down to the Amazon. But somehow there's this pull. There's this pull. And so, um, I, you know, I've certainly been called or, or drawn to ayahuasca and to maca, which is a nutritional and energizing root from the Andes, and kava, which is a profound, relaxing plant from the South Pacific, and many of the so-called adaptogens, those plants that help with physical and mental stress, like Panax ginseng, which I think most people know, and schizandra berry, and uh, rhodiola. You know, it seems as though one after another, these plants call, or somehow I kind of get roped into being particularly interested in certain plants. And then I help to, you know, kind of usher them along in terms of 
public awareness and, and letting people know, oh, you know, if you've got skin problems, like, for example, people suffer horribly from psoriasis. And yet we know from one very curious study of chaga, this uh, fungus that grows on birch and other trees, that every single person in this one particular published medical study on psoriasis, every, every participant had psoriasis, every person took chaga, every person's psoriasis went away. Uh, this completely defies everything we know about the disease. It defies what we understand in medicine, and yet this happened. And these exciting, profound plants and fungi seem to kind of reach out. And, you know, I wind up being intrigued. Colleagues of mine wind up being intrigued. These things sort of pull us in, and then the next thing we know, we're advocating for them and popularizing them. So building on what you said about popularizing these different plants, uh, another element of your work uh, includes the ethical uh, trade and also uh, the components of sustainability and preservation, cultural preservation and also plant preservation. Can you talk a little bit more about those? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, there, there are, you know, it's funny. There are different models that people live by. I mean, there are some people who use the expression, oh, it's not personal, it's business, you know, and that is uh, an excuse for bad behavior, uh, for treating people poorly, for making ethical and moral shortcuts. Uh, and there are others of us who, who say, hey, you know, nobody wins unless everybody wins. And in that situation, um, you know, when I look at a medicinal plant, when I and I look at a um, something that may be of benefit. You know, I have a lot of questions. Uh, what's the supply of this plant? Uh, would the popularization or the harvesting of it um, devastate the supply? Uh, can this be, you know, can this be used? Can this be uh, taken in a manner that won't damage the environment from which it comes? Does this need to be cultivated? And what are the conditions that are needed for this plant to be popularized in an environmentally sustainable and culturally sustainable way. Uh, a lot of uh, the history of, you know, plant discovery involves native people being exploited terribly and deriving no benefit from, um, you know, people like me who go to these natural environments and just basically find something and rip them off. And, you know, the model by which I work is, you know, the people need to have, you know, as good a wage as possible within the situation. The conditions need to be good. I mean, the actual work conditions, uh, as good as they can be in rough, natural places. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that whatever plant or plants are being harvested or cultivated in a manner that supports instead of degrades a healthy environment. So these are, these are key practices and principles. I, I had an incident one time. I was in Siberia. I was at the Central Siberian Botanical Garden, um, which is this amazing, amazing place in Novosibirsk, Siberia. And um, they, they very excitedly told me about a route they had that reduced an enlarged prostate. Mm -hmm. Now, this, of course, would be a heroic thing because all we have is something that will 
you know, basically inhibit further enlargement of a prostate. So I was very excited about this. So this was a route that had excellent science. These scientists had really investigated this route, um, but the problem was it was rare and it took 15 years to mature. So I you know, listened to what the scientists had to say and took very careful notes and then just completely forgot about it because there was no point in trying to popularize something that uh, you know, if I could be successful in that effort, would go extinct, which is exactly what would happen from the over-harvesting of a root that takes 15 years to mature. So, so if something is not going to be sustainable, I just walk away from it. Okay. All right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that we live in a world that is slowly, but uh, especially the millennials as a generation, they are starting to embrace this concept of sustainability. And they're really, I, I firmly believe that the newer generation is so much better in that respect, that they really understand that it's how important it is to preserve what we have and the gifts that the mother nature is giving us. So I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, I, I taught uh, for 14 years at the University of Massachusetts, and I taught a, a course there called the Shaman's Pharmacy. So all of my students were, you know, 20, 21 or so. And I was really pleased that many of them were far, far further along in terms of their sophistication of knowledge of sustainability than... Um, you know, other groups. Uh, and I, that gives me hope. I mean, I, I like that there are people out there who are, you know, pr promoting small family farming and organics and sustainable activities of all different kinds. And they're not backing down on these principles because that's really what it's going to take to, uh, you know, recover if we can from the environmental devastation that we've done all over the world. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Chris, I want to take you one step back. You were talking about teaching at the University of Massachusetts, and I know that you have done a number of different expeditions with your students. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, that was really one of the the great fun things ever for me. I, You know, I taught uh, lecture classes for about nine, ten years, Lana, and um, frankly, I, I felt at a certain point that it wasn't enough. So I proposed to the university that I could do a, uh, basically a, you know, a three credit undergraduate course, uh, in the Amazon as an immersion course, uh, something that they'd never had before. And we did that, uh, three times. I took groups, uh, down to the Amazon and, um, it was, it was everything I could have hoped it would be. Uh, you know, the students got, instead of just hearing about these places and hearing about the people and hearing about the plants, they got to experience it firsthand. And um, I only wish that there had been a course like that when I was a student at uh, UMass Amherst, which I was in the 70s. But um, yeah, that was very exciting. I think that bringing people to the field is irreplaceable. I've met people who have degrees in ethnobotany 
who have not spent much of any time in the field and and the field is where this this particular field of study happens you know you you have to get out there you have to meet the people investigate the plants uh it's not enough to simply know the chemistry and um you know imagine that somehow you understand the scene around these plants so i i feel that the the shaman's pharmacy courses that we did in the Amazon gave students the best possible insight into uh, what this is really about. That is fabulous. Um, I also want to warn people that might be listening to this uh, recording, to this podcast, this episode, that even though your life sounds incredibly adventurous and incredibly fascinating, you also have been in situations where, um, you know, you had parasites and malaria and various other issues that happen as a result of this travel. So this is not something to be uh, tried at home. Am I correct? Well, yeah, but I, you know, Lana, I mean, all of that's true. You know, I've had guns pointed at me. I've been accosted by unfriendly people. I've been chased by pirates. I've gotten diseases and accidents and injuries and burns. And I can't tell you how many times I've been stung in the face and neck by wasps and, you know, (laughs) but, but I have to say that that's just to be expected. Yes. Of if course. you're going to do this work, if you're going to go out there, if you're really going to investigate, stuff's going to happen. But but I'm not a thrill seeker. I'm not a danger seeker. Uh, if there's a dangerous situation, I go in the opposite direction. Plenty of danger to be found. Much of it is transportation and disease, you know, uh, cars that break down, buses and trucks and boats and planes that break down, uh, mosquitoes that carry deadly diseases. And, you know, uh, Lord knows I've been sick enough out there, but, but the advantages to being in nature, with indigenous people, in exciting places, uh, studying things that can be a benefit to humanity, all of those benefits are so much greater than the hazards that I just regard those as, you know, parts of the job. Yes, definitely. Uh, Chris, as we are coming to an end of the interview, I have two more questions for you. One of them is, um, are there certain things that you would like this audience to learn about what you do uh, or in general about plants that we haven't discussed thus far? And my second question is, how do people learn more about you and from you? Okay. In terms of uh, what people can know about plants, plants are the most widely used medicines on earth. No pharmaceutical is used as widely as plants. Plants form the basis of modern pharmacy. Many of the best life-saving medicines that we've ever had um, have been made from plants. And um, at this point in time, you know, the science on plant medicines, as you well know, is spectacular. I mean, you can find hundreds of thousands of published papers on the biological activity of these plants, of the compounds in them, of studies done on their efficacy. So the complaint that I used to hear in the 70s and 80s when I started out in this, oh, there isn't enough science, those days are over. We know these things work. 
We know they're effective. There are loads of human double-blind clinical studies showing this. Uh, so I think that we, even though we see a very, very big global market now, um, I still think it's going to grow enormously because people don't want the hazards of many of the pharmaceuticals. They do want the benefits of these plants. And um, fortunately, we're living in a time in which access to these is better than ever before. Uh, and in terms of your second question, uh, people can go to my website, medicinehunter.com. And medicinehunter.com is, is actually uh, quite an enormous site. Uh, there are loads of, of uh, pages on different medicinal plants. Um, you know, there are uh, lots of photographs from the field. And you can get a sense of, uh, and also links to at least 100 of the TV shows I've done. So you can get a, a good sense of my work, but you can also get a good sense of the field of plant medicine and what this is really about. That is wonderful. Chris, this was most fascinating. Thank you well, so much. Well, thank you, Lana. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you have enjoyed Chris's story and explorations as much as I have. You'll find the resources he mentioned in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 12. Please subscribe to the show and get the future episodes automatically downloaded to your device. This episode is proudly sponsored by Pure Indian Foods. Pure Indian Foods is a company created by the fifth generation of ghee makers, Ghee is a healthy, shelf-stable alternative to butter and other cooking oils. Since it has a high smoke point, ghee is one of the best fats you can use for baking and high-heat cooking. To learn more about the products and the company's philosophy, please visit wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash pureindianfoods or check the show notes wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 12 for the link to the products I usually have on hand in my kitchen, 100% organic grass-fed ghee. If you use a discount code LANA, you'll get $5 off on your first order over $25. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you.